Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Well, welcome to this special Christmas edition of the podcast. Uh, we're not going to have carols, and there's not going to be any fancy festive bumper music, but we are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to change the pace and the content of the podcast ever so slightly. It's still about fishing. It's still about fly fishing, in fact, but I'm revisiting something that I haven't done for years. In the first few years of the podcast, if you go back into the archives, you will find that uh, there was a holiday feature that I employed to take advantage of the fact that uh, this is a busy season and content creation, although is important and is a worthy task, and I endeavor to do so as frequently as I am able, uh, is just one more thing. And so I like to lean into the wonderful thing that is the public domain. And uh, this this year and this week, this episode of the podcast, I'm doing so with a story I actually recommended very recently. It was a novel, a short novel called Three Men in a Boat, to Say Nothing of the Dog. That's the subtitle. And this was published in 1889 by Jerome K. Jerome. And it is about a boat trip on uh, on the Thames River uh, in, in England. And it is a classic. It is witty. It is funny. And uh, there's fly fishing in it. Okay. And so that is what I am going to be reading a chapter. It's actually chapter 17 in the novel. You're not going to be left out of the story. Uh, the story itself is really a story that epitomizes the maxim of it, it being about the journey, not the destination. And uh, the, the book is truly a treat. It is wonderful. It is on the public domain. So you can hop online. You can, you can read it for free. Gutenberg has it, um, but it's also available um, through all sorts of um, audiobook formats, and uh, you can, of course, probably get it at your library. But uh, we're, we're going to dive in uh, figuratively uh, and actually literally here at the end to uh, these three men's boat journey and some stories that they uh, encounter, particularly those that have to do with fly fishing. So uh, this is this is where it picks up. 
We stayed two days at Streetly and got our clothes washed. We had tried washing them ourselves in the river under Georgia's superintendence, and it had been a failure. Indeed, it had been more than a failure, because we were worse off after we had washed our clothes than we were before. Before we had washed them, they had been very dirty, it is true, but they were wearable. After we washed them, well, the river between Reading and Henley was much cleaner after we washed our clothes in it than it was before. All the dirt contained in the river between Reading and Henley we collected during that wash, and it worked it into our clothes. The washerwoman at Streetly said she felt she owed it to herself to charge us just three times the usual prices for that wash. She said it had not been like washing, it had been more in the nature of excavating. We paid the bill without a murmur. The neighborhood of Streetly in Goring is a great fishing center. There is some excellent fishing to be had here. The river abounds in pike, roach, dace, gudgeon, and eels. Just here, and, and you can sit and fish for them all day. Some people do. They never catch them. I never knew anybody catch anything up the Thames except minnows and dead cats, but that has nothing to do, of course, with fishing. The local fisherman's guide doesn't say a word about catching anything. All it says is the place is, quote, a good station for fishing, unquote. And from what I have seen of the district, I'm quite prepared to bear up this statement. There's no spot in the world where you can get more fishing or where you can fish for a longer period. Some fishermen come here and fish for a day, and others stop and fish for a month. You can hang on and fish for a year if you want to. It'll all be the same. The Angler's Guide to the Thames says that Jack and Perch are also to be had about here. But there, the Angler's Guide is wrong. Jack and Perch may be about there. Indeed, I know it for a fact they are. You can see them in the shoals when you're out for a walk along the banks. They come and stand half out of the water with their mouths open for biscuits. And if you go for a bathe, they crowd round and get in your way and irritate you. But they are not to be had by a bit of worm on the end of a hook, nor anything like it. Not they. I'm not a good fisherman myself. I devoted a considerable amount of attention to the subject at one time, and was getting on, as I thought, fairly well, but the old hands told me that I should never be any real good at it and advised me to give it up. They said I was an extremely neat thrower, and that I seemed to have plenty of gumption for the thing and quite enough constitutional laziness, but they were sure I should never make anything of a fisherman. I had not got sufficient imagination. They said that as a poet, or a shilling shocker, or a reporter, or anything of that kind, I might be satisfactory, but that, to gain any position as a Thames angler, would require more play of fancy, more power of invention, than I appear to possess. Some people are under the impression that all that is required to make a good fisherman is the ability to tell lies easily and without blushing, but this is a mistake. Mere bald fabrication is useless. The various tyro can manage that. It is in the circumstantial detail, the embellishing touches of probability, the general air of scruples, and almost of pedantic veracity, that the experienced angler is seen. Anybody can come in and say, oh, I caught 15 dozen perch yesterday evening, or last Monday I landed a gudgeon, weighing 18 pounds and measuring 3 feet from the tip to the tail. There is no art, no skill required for that sort of thing. It shows pluck, that's all. No, your accomplished angler would scorn to tell a lie that way. His method is a study in itself. He comes in quietly with his hat on, approaches the most comfortable chair, lights his pipe, and commences to puff in silence. He lets the youngsters brag away for a while, and then, during a momentary lull, he removes the pipe from his mouth and remarks as he knocks the ashes out against the bars. Well, I had a haul on Tuesday evening. That's not much good telling my about anyway. Oh, why is that, they ask? Because I don't expect anyone would believe me if I did, replies the old fellow calmly, and without even a tinge of bitterness in his tone as he refills his pipe and requests the landlord bring him three of scotch, cold. There's a pause after this, nobody feeling sufficiently sure of himself to contradict the old gentleman, so he has to go on by himself without any encouragement. No, he continues thoughtfully, 
I shouldn't believe it myself if anyone told it to me, but it's all fact. For all that, I'd been sitting there all the afternoon and had caught literally nothing except a few dozen dace and a score of jack and was just about giving it up as a bad job when I suddenly felt a rather small pull at the line. I thought it was another little one, and when I went to jerk it up, hang me if I could move the rod. It took me half an hour, half an hour, sir, to land the fish, and every moment I thought the line was going to snap. I reached him at last, and what do you think it was? A sturgeon, a 40-pound sturgeon, taken on a line, sir. Yes, you may well look surprised. I'll have another three of scotch, landlord, please. And then he goes on to tell of the astonishment of everybody who saw it, and what his wife said, and when he got home, and what Joe Buggles thought about it. I asked the landlord of an inn up the river once if it did not injure him sometimes listening to the tales of the fishermen about Thayer told him, and he said, Oh no, not now, sir. It did use to knock me over a bit at first, but for love you, me and the missus, we listen to him all day now. It's what you're used to, you know, it's what you're used to. I knew a young man once, he was a most conscientious fellow, and when he took to fly fishing, he determined never to exaggerate his hauls by more than 25%. When I've caught 40 fish, he said he, then I'll tell people I've caught 50, and so on, but I will not lie any more than that, because it's sinful to lie. But the 25% plan did not work well at all. He never able was to use it. The greatest number of fish he ever caught in one day was 3, and you can't add 25% to 3, at least not in fish. So he increased his percentage to 33 and a third. But that, again, was awkward when he had only caught one or two. So, to simplify matters, he made up his mind to just double the quantity. He stuck to this arrangement for a couple of months, and then he grew dissatisfied with it. Nobody believed him when he told him that he only doubled, and he, therefore, gained no credit that way whatever, while his moderation put him at a disadvantage among the other anglers. When he had really caught three small fish and said he had caught six, it used to make him quite jealous to hear a man, whom he knew for a fact had only caught one, going about telling people he had landed two dozen. So eventually, he made one final arrangement with himself, which he has religiously held to ever since, and that was to count each fish that he caught as ten, and to assume ten to begin with. For example, if he did not catch any fish at all, then he said he had caught ten fish. You could never catch less than ten fish by a system. That was the foundation of it. Then, if by any chance he really did catch one fish, he called it 20, while two fish would count 30, 340, and so on. It's a simple and easily worked plan, and there has been some talk lately of its being made to use by the angling fraternity in general. Indeed, the committee of the Thames Angler Association did recommend its adoption about two years ago, but some of the older members opposed it. They said they would consider the idea if the number were doubled and each fish counted as 20. If you ever ever have an evening to spare up the river, I should advise you to drop into one of the little village inns and take up a seat at the tap room. You'll be nearly sure to meet one or two old rodmen sipping their toddy there, and they will tell you enough fishy stories in half an hour to give you indigestion for an entire month. George and I, I don't know what had become of Harris, he had gone out and had a shave early in the afternoon and had come back and spent a full 40 minutes in pipe playing his shoes. We had not seen him since. George and I, therefore, and the dog, left to ourselves, went for a walk to Wallingford in the second evening, and coming home, we called it at a little riverside inn for a rest and other things. We went into the parlor and sat down. There was an old fellow there smoking a long clay pipe, and we naturally began chatting. He told us that it had been a fine day today, and we told him that it had been a fine day yesterday, and then we all told each other that we thought it would be a fine day tomorrow, and George said the crop seemed to be coming up nicely. After that, it came out, somehow or another, that we were strangers in the neighborhood, and that we were going away the next morning. Then a pause ensued in the conversation, during which our eyes wandered around the room. They finally rested on a dusty old glass case, fixed very high up above the chimney piece, and it contained a trout. It rather fascinated me, that trout. It was such a monstrous fish. In fact, at first glance, I thought it was a cod. 
Ah, said the old gentleman, following the direction of my gaze. Fine fellow, that ain't he? Quite uncommon, I murmured, and George asked the old man how much he thought it weighed. Eighteen pounds, six ounces, said our friend, rising and taking down his coat. Yes, he continued. It were sixteen years ago, come a third of the month, that I landed him. I caught him just below the bridge with a minnow. They told me he were in the river, and I said I'd have him, and so I did. You don't see many fish that size about here now, I'm thinking. Good night, gentlemen, good night. And out he went, and left us alone. We could not take our eyes off the fish after that. It really was a remarkable fine fish. We were still looking at it when the local carrier who had just stopped at the inn came to the door of the room with a pot of beer in his hand, and he also looked at the fish. Good-sized trout, that, said George, turning round to him. Eh, you well may say that, sir, replied the man, and then after a pull at his beer, he added, Maybe you wasn't here, sir, when that fish was caught. No, we told him we were strangers in the neighborhood. Ah, said the carrier, then of course, I showed you. It was nearly five years ago that I caught that trout. Oh, was it you that caught that trout then, said I? Yes, sir, replied the general old fellow. I caught him just below the lock. Leastways, that was the lock then, one Friday afternoon, and the remarkable thing about it is that I caught him with a fly. I'd gone out pike fishing, bless you, never thinking of a trout, and when I saw that whopper at the end of my line, blessed if I didn't quite take me aback. Well, you see, he weighed twenty-six pounds. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. Five minutes afterward, a third man came in and described how he had caught it early one morning with Bleak, and then he left, and a solid, solemn-looking, middle-aged individual came in and sat down over by the window. None of us spoke for a while, but at length, George turned to the newcomer and said, I beg your pardon. I hope you will forgive the liberty that we, perfect strangers in the neighborhood, are taking, but my friend here and myself would be so much obliged if you would tell us about how you caught that trout up there. Why, who told you I caught that trout? was a surprise query. We said that nobody had told us so, but somehow or other we felt instinctively that it was he who had done it. Well, it's a most remarkable thing, most remarkable, answered the solid stranger, laughing, because, as a matter of fact, you were quite right. I did catch it, but fancy your guessing it like that. Dear me, it's really a remarkable thing. And then he went on and told us how he had taken half an hour to land it, and how it had broken his rod. He said he had weighed it carefully when he reached home and it had turned the scale at 34 pounds. He went in his turn, and when he was gone, the landlord came to us. We told him the various histories that we had heard of his trout, and he was immensely amused, and we all laughed very heartily. Fancy me Jim Bates and Joe Muggles and Mr. Jones and old Billy Maunders all telling you they'd caught it. Ha ha ha. Well, that is good, said the honest old fellow, laughing heartily. Yes, they are the sort to give it to me. But to put it up in my parlor, if they had caught it, they are. Ha ha ha. And then he told us the real history of the fish. It seemed that he had caught it himself years ago, when he was quite a lad. Not by any art or skill, but by that unaccountable luck that appears to always wait upon a boy when he plays the wag from school and goes out fishing on a sunny afternoon with a bit of string tied on the end of a tree. He said that bringing home that trout had saved him from a whacking, that even his schoolmaster had said it was worth the rule of three and practice put together. He was called out of the room at this point, and George and I again turned our gaze upon the fish. It was really a most astonishing trout. The more we looked at it, the more we marveled at it. It excited George so much that he climbed up on the back of the chair to get a better view of it. And then the chair slipped, and George clutched wildly at the trout case to save himself, and it came down with a crash, George and the chair on top of it. You haven't injured the fish, have you? I cried in alarm, rushing up. I hope not, said George, rising cautiously and looking about. But he had. The trout lay shattered in a thousand fragments. I say a thousand, but they may have been only nine hundred. I did not count them. We thought it strange and unaccountable that a stuffed trout should break up in little pieces like that. And so would have been strange and unaccountable if it had been a stuffed trout, but it was not. That trout was plaster of Paris. So there you have it. Chapter 17 of Three Men in a Boat. Hopefully it was enjoyable. At some point in the reading of that, I decided accents were 
necessary. I suppose it's still acceptable and not cultural appropriation to use English accents if you speak English. But anyway, that is what we did. It is a, a again a fine book, and and what I just read is really about the extent of the fly fishing. Uh, uh, content of the book, but even that wasn't that fly fishing. -y. But it does uh, it does touch on being on the river, and so if you uh, boat at all, if you tra ever trespassed or, or not trespassed, I'm a tree like you're trespassing. If you've had to pack for a trip, if you've had to camp, if you've ever been wet at night, if you have ever uh, dealt with people being ridiculous or your fishing companions being downright uh, um, impossible to deal with, then this is a book that you will certainly enjoy. Uh, it is the kind of book where you can read a chapter at a time and. As you just saw, it's me reading at a relatively brisk pace. I got through it in less than 15 minutes. And I believe there's only about 22 chapters in the book. So it's the kind of book you could have at your bedside uh, or at your nightstand or um, at your end table or even in the bathroom. And you could uh, really get through it and, and enjoy it. And I imagine it's the kind of book that you could revisit time and time again. Again, it is considered a classic and uh, it's definitely worth your time. Well, again, this is going to be a shorter episode because of the time of the year. It's being released a couple of days before Christmas 2023, and uh, we'll have another podcast this year, but I guess I just wanted to wrap up this episode with a couple of encouragements. One, uh, try to get out and fish. One of the things I say often on the podcast and on the website is if you are not dropping out of family responsibilities and certainly work responsibilities, then try to work fishing into your holiday, um, you know, plans, your holiday routines, your holiday traditions. Uh, for years and years, that was New Year's Eve and New Year's Day for me. Um, I'm excited about as I explore my new property more, finding the water and finding a way to get out there on some of these days and maybe making that a new tradition with my boys. Uh, so that's something that if you're within a short drive from the river, maybe maybe make make uh, that part of your tradition or maybe something as simple as tying a fly. You know, you get that maybe nice bottle of bourbon for Christmas and uh, you, you crack it open and you tie a fly at Christmas, maybe using red and green or something like that. And then it inevitably goes in your fly box. You never use it again, but you can remember that uh, first sip of that nice uh, bottle that you got and uh, that Christmas uh, all those years ago. Uh, secondly, uh, gift giving. It is not too late to write someone a card and tell them, I'm going to take you fishing. And if you're listening to this in the middle of July for some reason, uh, then this is something that you can definitely apply whenever it is appropriate. Uh, the gift of time is so incredibly valuable. So consider giving somebody the gift of time. And uh, even though you are procrastinating potentially, uh, it is if it done done right and done well, it is absolutely a good and beneficial way to to gift somebody something. And uh, looking back on it, whether it be in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, when they take you up on that, it uh, will, will certainly be much appreciated. So that's the second thing. The third thing is uh, it is uh, Christmas, and one of the things I am struck with more and more every year is how, uh, as a culture, uh, as a civilization, as it were. We become more and more detached from history and more and more detached from uh, the foundations uh, that, that make us who we are as a culture and who we are as people. And one of those is uh, losing sight of, of the meaning of Christmas. And uh, I make no bones about it. I am a, a, a Christian pastor. I am a, a pastor in the Reformed uh, Baptist tradition. And so when, when I think of uh, Christmas, I think of what we've, our culture's thought about it for the last 2,000 years, which is celebrating the incarnation. 
It's not just celebrating a manger. It's celebrating God made flesh to dwell among us, living a perfect life uh, so that he can make a perfect substitutionary atonement on the cross, uh, that he took our place and he paid our price. And those two events, Christmas and Easter, if you will, are indelibly linked to one another. You cannot think about the manger without thinking about the cross. You cannot think about Calvary without thinking about Bethlehem. And these are things that uh, have been in our culture. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's remarkable to, to have another side. You know, we sing these songs, uh, uh, Little Town of Bethlehem, Come, o Come, Emmanuel, uh, The First Noel, um, and, and so many others. And uh, they, they almost have become words without meaning. And so my encouragement to you, bare minimum, is, is as you sing songs or listen to songs on the radio, whether they be uh, of a traditional style or I'm a real big fan of, get this, of uh, Rob Halford of uh, Judas Priest. He came out with three Christmas albums. I'm pretty confident this guy doesn't really have much Orthodox faith, but man, his, his Halford th- uh, three, I believe, uh, Christmas album, it's just spectacular. But uh, what that illustrates is that all types of folks sing these songs. And uh, as you sing them, think about the words, think about what they mean. And uh, talk to someone that you know that uh, that takes them to heart. And uh, as I always say, reach out to me. Ask me questions about fly rods. Ask me questions about fishing the Shenandoah National Park. Uh, ask me questions uh, about uh, about uh, Orthodox faith, and I'm happy to to uh, give you give you my take on it. And again, the historical perspective. But with that said, a very merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you for listening. Thank you, whether you're listening to this right when it comes out a couple days before Christmas, or somehow this makes it into your holiday celebration. You are uh, going over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house, or maybe to one more trip to Costco, or perhaps to even go fishing that you have made casting across a part of your day. I really do appreciate it. This week on the website, two articles. I say that every week as if it changes. But the first one came out on Monday, as the first one often does, and it's called Flyrod FAQs. Flyrod FAQs. So I'm excited about about this. Uh, I have a couple of regular features on the website. One of them is a, a list of fly fishing books, and you can always see that's a static page that gets updated. So the page doesn't move, the content of the uh, the page grows. Um, the other one is that the fly shop box, the list of fly shops. Uh, and I'm thinking I'm going to add a third one. It's called fly shop, fly rod FAQs. So of all the questions, comments, and accusations I get, fly rod questions seem to be the most recurring, recurring question I get, which is awesome. And I, I love to answer these questions. And uh, given the fact that I have sold fly rods, that I have uh, caught, taught casting, uh, that I have um, learned casting, and, and that I kind of do what I do, I feel like I have a little bit of knowledge, at least the kind that can be communicated to a, another layperson about how to um, pick a fly rod or to, to, to make a choice between one or the other. And so I want to have an ever-increasing and growing catalog of questions and answers, an FAQ page about picking fly Rods. So this is the first installment, and it'll inevitably uh, turn into a page that can be a resource on the website. Wednesday's article was called Go Fishing for Trout's Sake. Go Fishing for Trout's Sake. Um, it's a follow-up article to an article that came out the very end of August, very beginning of September, which is called, I think, No Fishing for Trout's Sake. I think that's what it was called. But it had to do with the fact that they shut down the Shenandoah National Park trout streams to fishing because of drought. Now, I have not been in Virginia since actually the 
early part of August. And it wasn't particularly dry when I was there, but I take their word for it. But uh, they've lifted that ban. So it's been, you know, the se September, October, November, and about half of December that the park was shut down. And for folks who live in Virginia and the surrounding states, uh, although there's a lot of great brook trout water in the whole region, uh, Shenandoah National Park is the accessibility, the beauty, and the proximity to uh, Northern Virginia makes it just a special place of for, for fly fishers. And so to have it shut down is kind of a big deal. But it's back open, and I think that's the right kind of management. It's, it's a bummer to set aside fly fishing and fly fishing your favorite streams for a season, but uh, it was for the benefit of those fish. So I wrote about that briefly on the website this week. This week's recommendation is something that I actually haven't done, but I've, I've thought about it. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm not super artsy and crafty and I'm not the best fly tire in the world, but here's, here's an idea for you. And this might, might expand into an article, uh, on the website next week. Uh, it'll be late because that'll come out actually on Christmas day. Uh, but, uh, you know, those glass balls, the, the, the glass balls that you put up on the tree, you can get the ones that are completely transparent. They're just clear glass balls with a little uh, hook and a little cap on them. You know, you can get those at the craft store and you can get different uh, diameters, different size spheres. And uh, I've thought that it would be a really cool thing each year, either as a gift or as of some sort of memento, to tie a fly and that has been meaningful to you or meaningful to the person you're, you're, you're giving a gift to or take a fly that you, you have used. So this might be a chewed up trouty fly and uh, attach it to the bottom of that um uh, the, the hook and slide the whole uh, contraption into that glass ball. And now you have a little fly ornament. Uh, certainly not original, certainly not complicated, but uh, consider that if you want a new way to add a fly fishing tradition, or you are thinking of a gift to give somebody, then that would be a quick and easy, assuming you have everything on hand, gift to give. And uh, it would just be a, a, another fun way to add fly fishing into your holidays. And uh, it's certainly better than a lot of the ornaments that I've seen as I've been shopping way too much this season. So um, you know what? I'll, I'll put a, a, a note about that on the podcast page of Casting Cross, but I do think I will write about that uh, next week. Let's see if I can even get a picture uh, put together for that. So you can stay tuned. Uh, subscribe over at castingcross.com. And hey, if you want to give me a Christmas gift, uh, if, if you haven't already left a review and uh, a five-star rating on iTunes, I would truly appreciate it. The same thing goes for Spotify. Uh, it's good to see those come in. It helps get the podcast in front of more people's eyes and into more people's ears. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm -hmm.